Looking for your next gripping page turner? Head over to Dead Good, the home of killer crime books, TV and film for recommendations, discounted books at bargain prices and exclusive giveaways. Visit deadgoodbooks.co.uk, sign up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. See you in Harrogate for the Dead Good Reader Awards in 2021. We can't wait. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. Sit back, relax, and join us for an interview with Anthony Horowitz. This episode is kindly supported by the Dead Good Book Award. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Joe Haddo, and today I'm joined by him over there, the playwright, the screenwriter, and best-selling novelist, Anthony Horowitz. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Joe. How very pleasant to be talking to you again. It's so lovely to see you again. Um, it's so lovely to get this, this, well, I think it's a must, isn't it, for authors to have bookshelves behind them when they do one of these interviews. And it's so lovely that you've complied with the regulations. I know. People's bookshelves have become a new lace curtains that peel up <laughs> you in their lives. Rather egotistically, you're actually looking at pretty much every book behind me is written by me in the different languages. And I sometimes wonder why I even bothered to keep them, you know, serbo-croat versions of Alex Ryder, in the knowledge that the day I die, the whole lot of them will go into a skip, as probably will I, as my children quickly clear the house. But, but that's what they are. Oh well, well, it just it just goes to show also how how many blooming books you've written, doesn't it? Because you know that's quite a collection. They do mount up actually. Sometimes I sort of despair of having any more shelf space. But yes, um, I think I actually worked out the other day. I've now written fifty four books, uh, wow. and most of them are in about twenty languages. So do the maths. I mean, yeah, well, in the room downstairs. <laughs> um, well, it's it's July and it's lockdown because um, obviously, had it been under different circumstances, we may well have been stood outside a hotel in Harrogate having this a conversation. Lovely town. I love I love Harrogate. I was there many years ago. I was at university in York and used to go often. And it's sad. I mean, these these virtual festivals are the next best thing, but the, but they are not quite the same. It's, uh, we can't have a drink together, for example, when we finish. No, and that's uh, and that. I think from talking to lots of authors recently, um, you know, this this way over Zoom, as everyone seems to be doing nowadays. It's it, it, yeah, it's it, everyone's missing the social aspect because I think for you authors, you know, who spend a lot of time on your own, it's it's the social aspect of the festivals that really help you sort of, you know, keep within the community a bit and, and keep up with what's going on. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there's nothing quite like meeting readers. Our life is so solitary, but just, you know, if you're doing a signing session and you just have 10 or 15 seconds contact with somebody who actually reads and likes your books, it does make a huge difference. And somehow Zoom, Twitter, Facebook, all of these things, I mean, they're great, but, they, but they're not quite the same. And I've, I've really, if there's one thing I've missed actually throughout this whole coronavirus, and I know it's a, it's a small thing to miss in a way, but when you think about what's happening around me and, and people's jobs and livelihoods and, and key workers and all the sort of the terrible grief that there has been in the last few months, but what I have missed has been those the festivals, the literary festivals, so many of them cancelled, so many chances to meet people and meet friends and other writers, you know, I, I felt more isolated than ever. Yeah. Well, we want to talk about um, your work, your new book, and generally about sort of your love of crime and a little bit about Harrogate as well um, over the next sort of half an hour or so. Firstly, though, I wanted to ask you about creativity at this time because you are prolific and you're an incredibly creative person. And whenever we meet, you've always got ideas on the go and you're writing things or you're planning things. 
And I just wondered, has this sort of strange old time affected that or have you still been as, as productive as you usually are? Well, I've been very productive and prolific. I've had to be because I've had deadlines to do. I'm at the moment adapting Magpie Murders, an earlier book into a TV series. I've been writing a murder mystery for um, our Quibi in America. Uh, I'm planning the next Hawthorne novel for Random House. I've actually been putting to bed uh, Moonflower Murders, my new novel I was still editing at the beginning of lockdown. So, I mean, I've been as busy as ever, but it hasn't been the same. It's rather odd. I mean, I, I've always worked long hours, but I think I've been less focused now. I think uh, that one of the odd things about this, about the virus, and I'm, I'm talking to you from the middle of London, um, has been that without the sort of buzz of real life around me, I felt in a sort of a strange vacuum. And, and work that used to take me a matter of minutes somehow has stretched out into hours. So, so I've managed to do it all, but it's taken longer and it hasn't quite been the same. I just hope that the quality has been there. I will say that, at least. The ideas have still been coming. I, I don't know if you know, I actually started writing a book during lockdown, um, which I made up as I went along. I posted it. It was for children. It was called um, The Seagull Has Landed. So it was a Tim Diamond sort of film pastiche. Uh, and um, actually it wasn't called The Seagull Has Landed. It's called Where Seagulls Dare. Uh, same pun, different film. Chapter. Different, different film. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I wrote that chapter by chapter, which is a you know, so in a very linear way, without having the opportunity. I posted each chapter as I finished it, and I was amazed: a that I could write it, b that the jokes kept coming, and c that it sort of made some kind of sense without, as I say, the the ability to go back and and rewrite. So that was a very different writing experience. Yeah, I bet, and and but probably quite satisfying for you 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 love a challenge don't you you love yeah, it's fine because i mean i felt a need to do something to sort of support kids out of school and to provide sort of you know the book was free and it was on my website um so, so it was satisfying but it more to that actually it was just it really it, it was reassuring it told me that actually i can still write no matter how terrible the world is on the other side of these windows um i i can still do it uh, yeah. so, so it was reassuring the concentration thing's interesting, though, because I know a lot of people have, you know, certainly at the start of lockdown, I think it might have changed now, were struggling to even, you know, really get into a book because the concentration wasn't there, you know, reading a book, I mean. It took me a long time, I and mean, I've done a lot of reading at this time as well. That has been one of the best things about the virus. I've given up reading the news. That's, that's something. I mean, I can't bear newspapers anymore. And so instead of reading newspapers in the morning, I'm reading books and discovering that fiction is so much more enlightening and so much more uh, enjoyable. Uh, and I wake up and I get out of bed, actually in a sort of more buoyant mood, simply from having read 50 pages of fiction, rather than, you know, more virus, more America, more Trump, more Putin, more of the rest of it. I mean, and, you know, I think right now, crime fiction in particular, I don't know why I say crime fiction, but I suppose all fiction mm. has never been more valuable. No, I think, I think you're right. And actually, I'm not a big sort of social media person and I, I sort of hate the way that it can make one feel spending too much time scrolling down a sort of constant timeline of, as you say, you know, Brexit and coronavirus and doom and various other things so uh, by by removing that and getting lost in a story whether it be crime fiction and a real page turner and you're sort of you're sort of captured by that or or it's something else i just think it's it's possibly the best way to start your day other than with a good cup of coffee of course 
Uh, yes, um, I actually don't drink coffee ever. Never have. One of my few writers that I've never done. No. Wow. Um, if you raise your cup to me, I know I still miss cigarettes. So uh, it's very difficult to write crime fiction without smoking. I think the <laughs> Chandler somehow, <laughs> you know, cigarette smoke is so much part of my genre. But I haven't smoked since I was in my thirties, and uh, and I miss that. I moved from that into chocolate biscuits as my sort of go-to. <laughs> rest stop between paragraphs, but that was just as bad for me as smoking in the end. Now occasionally green tea. But the point is, in the morning, um, a book. Yes, that is my new thing now, but actually I can read 50 or 60 pages every morning. And I think it does give you a completely different mindset. You know, I pick up the news a little bit on, on Radio 4 and on television during the course of the day, uh, and social media too, but, but the news has become very repetitive and I think also in a way quite untrustworthy. That's the other really quite worrying thing. I don't think it's the fault of journalists and the media, although I'm not sure that they're 100% guilt-free either, but politicians are now manipulating the truth so much, certainly in America, of course, but to an extent here in the UK too, and therefore I mistrust everything I read. It's a funny world, isn't it, where actually fiction becomes the new truth. <laughs> yeah, it is. And partly why maybe you know, this, this appetite for crime fiction is, is still out there, it's still growing. Um, what, what is it about crime fiction that you love, both as a, as a writer of it and, and as a reader? What's not to love? I mean, <laughs> what I love about, you know, what, I mean, are you asking me now as a reader or as a writer? Because I think there are different experiences than that. I mean, writing for me, crime fiction is a chance to beguile, to trick, to hoodwink, to play games, to have a laugh, to, to have a relationship with the reader, which is quite sort of an amusing one, where I'm almost in a combative state. Are you going to guess this? Are you going to see what I'm really writing here? So for writing it, it's an enormous pleasure. For reading it, I think. I think that the joy of crime fiction is that it very, very quickly gets to the heart of human emotion. You don't read a murder story actually for the murder. You read it for the person who was murdered and the person who did the murder and the relationship between them. Murder is a very extreme act and therefore the emotions are going to be very big. You don't murder somebody because you're mildly annoyed with them. You have to be furious or you have to be passionately in love or you have to desperately need what they have. And I like the fact that the emotions are so exaggerated in the murder story uh, when I'm reading it. And it's, it is a case, I, I always just say that when I was writing Midsummer Murders on television, those net curtains that hung on every cottage in the village of Midsummer were ripped open for us to look into the private lives of individuals. The murder was the excuse to do that and that was the pleasure of the show. Yeah, yeah, very true actually. Um, and I've been, I've been sort of going between a, 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 a bit of crime fiction and then maybe trying to find some humour, you know, some humorous books, uh, maybe a bit of literary fiction, a classic, back to crime fiction, you know, I've really been mixing it up and every time I come back to a, to a crime fiction, something new usually, um, you know, I'm just like, it's, it's, you're in, aren't you? You're, you're enthralled from page one if it's a good novel. And course, Yeah, that's right, and of course, I mean, you know, it's there, and also, listen, let's, let's remember there are different genres of crime fiction, and yes. my reality is sort of the whodunit area, but sort of the, the puzzle with a solution rather than the thriller, uh, you know, which, which is being written by so many great writers as well. And my books, although they have a sort of a, a little bit of action here and there, and, and the characters sort of, you know, murders happen and the hero or heroine does get into danger, uh, by and large, they're more cerebral puzzles 
than than straightforward thrillers. And I think they also have an enormous satisfaction to them because, you know, it's like when I was reading the newspaper, every morning I did the Times crossword. And one of the joys of that was that for 30 minutes, I forgot everything except for sort of, you know, crazy anagrams and cryptic clues and sort of, and, and, and sometimes answers with a lot of wit and style about them as well. And I think that's what Whodunit provides. That's yeah. escapism. Yeah, it, yes, absolutely. And you're also very good and obviously like sort of joining your novels a bit as well or, you know, in in series and also with, you know, weaving characters into other things. And I think we'll talk about your, your latest novel a little bit later on. Um, but it's, it's interesting. You, I remember when we discussed um, a book a while ago uh, that was evidently sort of influenced by your love of, of Sherlock Holmes and also you wrote yourself into it <laughs> as the character. Those are the Hawthorne novels. The Hawthorne uh, novels. Yeah. Murder and Sentence is Death, of which I'm now doing a third one at this very moment. Uh, and talking about the difficulty of, of working in, a, in, in this sort of day and age, I do find actually stringing together a whodunit plot during the time of coronavirus really difficult. I don't quite know why, but my focus just isn't there. I've been banging my head against my notebook for weeks now. But those <laughs> are the Hawthorne books where, yes, Hawthorne is a detective and I turn up hired by Hawthorne to write about his adventures. And the idea is he wants to split the royalty 50-50 because he needs some money. Um, and it's a contentious relationship. And I did it, I have to say, hastily, not out of some kind of ego trip, but merely because I think in all the whodunits I'm writing, I am trying to subvert the genre or trying to use it for different things and, and in different ways and to try and write books that haven't been written before. And that just struck me as an interesting idea that the narrator, if it is Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie, knows everything. Yeah. But if you are inside the book, you know nothing. How can, how can I even describe a room if I'm inside the book? Because I don't know whether the ruler lying on the desk is, is, has got to be mentioned because it's a clue. You know, that, that the killer had to measure something before they did the killing. So why would I even mention the ruler if I'm inside the world? So it's, sorry, it's rather, that sounds rather dry and meta, meta, whatever the word is, but, it's, uh, but, but that is sort of what I was trying to aim for. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, looking at a, a genre, looking at writing and trying to do something different with it to push the boundaries of it, um, which is what we love about you, Anthony. Well, you're kind, but I mean, that was the whole reason behind Foil's War, because having written Midsummer Murders, it did strike me that as much as I loved doing that show, why should I spend three months of my life writing the sort of 95-page script simply to inform you that the butler did it? You know, and then I began to think, is there a way that you can use who done it to do something more? Which is why I began to write stories of the Second World War, cunningly disguised as whodunits, uh, as murder mysteries. They, I don't think they would have made Foyle's War if a central character had been, shall we say, a car mechanic. I mean, you know, it, it's sort of a, the fact that he's a detective solving murders is the excuse on which to hang the show. Can we talk Alex Ryder for a little bit? Um, the latest in your series came out quite recently called Nightshade, and... It's a special one in that it, it marks 20 years of Alex, doesn't it? Can you believe that? It does make me feel terribly old and a little <laughs> bit resentful because in 20 years, Alex is only aged 15 months, whereas I have gone ever further into middle and even late middle age. So it's sort of, it's a, that's a little depressing thought. Although I'll tell you something that actually I really like about that, which is that I am meeting now young people in their 20s and even in their 30s who read me when they were in their teens and, and, you know, age 10. And that's because I've been around for so long. And I always feel quite happy that, that I have been 
one molecule in their bloodstream through their life, but you know they have grown up with me, and that's it. And you know, most of the people who introduce themselves and say, "Oh, I read your books," seem to be terribly nice. And so it's sort of it's it's uh, that that's encouraging. That's great, isn't it? And also, I think you know they they might possibly go on to discover some of your adult novels after that. Well, because to be honest with you, it's one of the reasons why I moved into adult writing. I mean, there were, there were lots of reasons to move out of the world of children's books largely and into the world of, of adult murder mystery writing. But one of them was a sense of, I'm not going to let my readers go. You read me when you were young. Well, I'm damn well going to continue writing for you now that you're older. So here's a book for you. Um, and I'm not sure if that has actually happened, whether those younger readers have moved on to, you know, my Sherlock Holmes and Bond and other detective stories. But, but that was the original motivation, as well as a feeling that the, the game was up and away with children's mm. books. Um, I, I thought this for a long time, but the moment that J.K. Rowling stopped writing the Harry Potter books, something went out of that sort of extraordinary energy and excitement that, that I felt when I was first getting well-known with the Alex Ryder books. Uh, you know, the time when Philip Pullman and Darren Shan and Owen Colfer and Jacqueline Wilson and Mallory Blackman and, and Michael Morpurgo, etc., were all suddenly this new force of, of, of children's authors. I feel that that has slightly, to a sense, you know, there are still some wonderful, talented people out there, but that has slightly, I felt, feel dissipated, and therefore I became nervous that I should move on, and, and that was another reason to get into adult books. Yeah. Did, do you remember sort of coming up with Alex Ryder? Because as I recall, you know, the, the idea was from you, what if I could create a sort of James Bond character who was a teenager? I, I vividly remember writing the very first sentence of Stormbreaker, the first book, 20 years ago, when I was living in Crouch End. And um, I'd had the idea five or six years before, uh, and it did, as you correctly say, come out of James Bond in a sense, that Bond was just getting too old, and the sort of the light bulb moment was watching Roger Moore, age 57, playing Bond, and thinking to myself, <laughs> wouldn't it be better if Bond was a teenager? But I didn't write it for five or six years, and the reason I wrote it was partly because of Harry Potter. I'd been writing sort of books not dissimilar to Harry Potter, Gruesome Grange, Return to Gruesome Grange, schools about, to stories about a school that teaches magic and all that sort of stuff. Nowhere near as good as J.K. Rowling, I hasten to add. But nonetheless, when those books took off, I realized I had to move my stool. I had to find something else to do, and I remembered that idea I'd had. And at the time, there were no teenage spies. Plenty of teenage magicians knocking about the place, but no teenage spies. And um, I thought, well, I will have one last go. Because my books, my kids' books were, were doing well, but not spectacularly well. And I just remember sitting down in my studio in Crouch End, taking a pad and writing, when the doorbell rings at three in the morning, it's never good news. And that sentence was a sentence that changed my life. Um, yeah. And I can, as I say that line to you, I can see the garden in front of me, I can see the kitchen door, I can see my children, then aged about sort of nine and 11, coming out to probably interrupt me and, and such. And I, I remember even arguing with my wife, Jill, who said to me, look, you're writing television, you're doing very well in all your writing, but your children's books don't sell. Why are you writing another one? And I said to her, well, I think this one is different. I think mm. this is one that's going to connect with the audience that I know is out there. And, and I was right. And did you think, I mean, obviously you... You remember that moment, which is lovely, and that must mean that you knew you knew you had something, and, and that you were excited. Fundamentally different. If you look at that sentence again, when the doorbell rings at three in the morning, it's never good news. That's not a children's book sentence. That's an adult sentence. It's a James Bond sentence. It's mm. quite dark. It's quite. It opens a door into a very sort of difficult world. I mean, after all, the, the doorbell is ringing because the police are there to say that. Um, 
the, but the uncle has died and, and Alex is now orphaned again. Uh, and it just had a, it, I think the difference was that in all my children's books until Alex Ryder, and they're still all in print, by the way, and I'm still very proud of them. You know, the Diamond Brothers, I've been writing, as I mentioned, on the net, and, and, uh, uh, and I'm very happy to have returned to them. But the difference was that in all the earlier books, the central character knew that this was a safe world, but it was a children's book, and that the character was a hero or heroine in a children's book. With Alex Ryder, it was a kid in an adult world. And I always thought of these books as adult books for kids. And I think yeah. that was part of the reason why they took off where the other ones, you know, until then happened. Did you ever think that you'd still be writing him sort of 20 years later? No, but I, <laughs> I try, look, I don't think 20 years into the past or the future, it's too scary. I mean, 20 years from now, will I even be, you know, around? I mean, it, it, it's so, I sort of, <clears throat> Stormbreaker sold very well. The first book sold well and Point Blank, which of course has just now turned up on television as well, uh, sold even better. And I did begin to realize after two or three books that I was, as it were, riding a tiger, and that this is, was very special. I think the moral of this story to anybody listening or watching, by the way, especially writers, is this, is that, you know, it took me 11 books before I got myself known. And I think that the moment comes to all of us, but you just have to sort of recognize it and wait for it and hope for it and then, and then write it when it finally does arrive. Yeah, when you get a when you get a sentence like that, and then you sort of can see the whole story and the whole, <coughs> excuse me, whole character sort of in front of you, then you know you're onto a winner, really, don't you? Um, well, that said, I never knew I was onto a winner, as you put it, because I think that's also very dangerous. I think the moment you start thinking, you know, for me, every next book is. Is, uh, is, is dangerous in a way. Is it going to be any good? Are people going to like it? Will it be as good as the last one? Will they find out finally that actually I'm no good? That fear has never, ever left me. You know, the, writer, mm. the famous writer's fear of being caught out and as a fake. Uh, and uh, uh, so I, I never, I, you know, even when Alex was at its most sort of, you know, biggest and phenomenal, uh, I never ever had rested on my laurels and thought, yeah, I've, I've cracked it now. How involved were you in the TV adaptation? Um, well, I didn't write it. That was done by Guy Burt. He did a great job writing the scripts. And um, I was an executive producer, which I'm sure, you know, when films roll, you see a sort of half a dozen EPs and wonder what they will do. And even now I'm not entirely sure. I was there. I was, I was involved development of the scripts. I did help. I had two hats on, one as a, as a producer of the show, but more importantly, as a sort of the custodian of the books. And the guy, the, the brilliance of Guy was that he completely got what the books were about and he got the spirit of them. But at the same time, he wasn't afraid to throw stuff out and to expand them into a, the, the TV series is much more adult than the book is uh, because it had to be with a budget that size, um, Sony who made it, didn't, couldn't afford for it to be children's television. It had to be yeah. for adults too. And that's what Guy did so very, very well. Do you, do you know instantly, if you come up with an idea, if, if, if something, a germ of something starts swilling around in your head, do you know if that's going to be an adult novel or whodunit? Do you know if it's going to be a, a YA, a, a screenplay? Or is it, do you have to sort of think it through, start writing it, and then it becomes obvious what it'll be? 
it happens two ways. Sometimes people will come to me and ask me for a book, for example, the third Hawthorne novel I'm thinking about now. Okay. So I'm sitting here all day thinking about murder mysteries and sort of, you know, and whodunits and settings and where I can take the two characters next. So in other words, I am searching for the idea that will fit in the box. Sometimes ideas just fall into my head out of nowhere. You know, wouldn't that be fun? And I always know instantly what they are. Are they a play? Are they a film? Are they a, a short story, a novel, an adult? for children you know the uh, it just to me is obvious the moment the idea lands where which box i'm going to put it in i suppose that, and that partly comes from knowing you know knowing your characters so well knowing alex Ryder so well so you know what would fit but also as we talked about earlier and as we can see from behind you you know that having written and published so many books in, in sort of different genres and things i guess you you sort of automatically know where where that's going to land for you yeah, I think that I think that the uh, it's one of the reasons, in say, which I've I've never been that crazy about um, theatrical plays that are based on either novels or films. Films mm. turned into plays, books turned into plays. Because to me, that that to me is sort of it's this sort of illogicality about it almost. That if an idea is a book, it's a book idea, and transferring it into another format is like sort of you know I don't know. It's like it's, uh, what what is the analogy? It's like eating. I don't know, roast beef for pudding sort of thing. It's <laughs> wrong. It's sort of, you know, what, why are you doing that? So, so... I mean, I probably would do it, but yeah, I get... Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it's sort of, it's just that the idea and the genre seem to me to be, or the idea and the, and the container seem to me to be inseparable. But that's just, you know, that's sort of my way of seeing it. Yeah. Uh, and coming very soon is a new adult novel which you mentioned, Moonflower Murders. Um, can you give us a little a teaser of what we can look forward to? I've got a beautiful cover. I can show oh, you. Oh wow! This is not actually the whole book, although you can see it is jolly thick. This is the um, this is the advanced proof uh, which I've got inside here. It's a lovely um, cover, isn't uh, it? And this is a sequel to, to Magpie Murders, which I think probably has been my most successful mystery book so far, which told the story of Susan Ryland. The central character is not a detective. She is a, an editor in a publishing company. And these are very literary detective stories um, uh, with books inside books. So in Moonflower Murders, Susan is, um, her, her publishing days seem to be over. She's on holiday, or rather she's working in Crete in Greece when a couple come in with a murder mystery. The solution to which can be found in a book that she published, a real murder mystery that took place now, but the solution or the key to it, the hint of who did it, is hidden in a book written, uh, written a few years earlier by an author who's now dead. And so you get both the book inside the book, Atticus Punt takes the case, and you get Moonflower Murders, which is the whole novel. And uh, uh, it's, it's, I'm excited about it. I didn't think the Magpie Murders could have a sequel. I, I, you know, it was meant to be a one-off, but the publishers liked it enough to say, can you think up another one? And also because we're doing it for television, I think I mentioned earlier, I've been adapting it. The producers are very, very keen for there to be more than one season because that's how modern television works. And so it made sense to come up with a sequel. I'm just glad it's worked out as well as it has. Great, yeah, that's, that's fab. Are you, do you know who's playing Susan yet in the adaptation? I can't say, but we have a really wonderful piece of casting, so I'm very happy. Oh, that's good. Um, and I, it, it's, it, it sort of starts out in Greece, which I know is, uh, it's in Crete, isn't it? And I know that's a, that's a country you love and you, I think you go to write there. Um, so what, was, was it a, a sort of inspiration while you were there that, that this one would start? Sure, right? the, 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 but it works like this. It may sound a little pretentious, the answer to your question, but I will tell you the truth of how it works. <laughs> it's like a set of nesting Russian dolls. So you have a character called Atticus Punt, who is a detective created by 
and here is the next doll in my The Outer Doll by an author called Alan Conway. And the books work because the world of Atticus Punt reflects on the world of Alan Conway, the inner doll, the outer doll. But I never forget that there is yet another third Russian doll on that, which is me, because I'm writing both Alan Conway and Atticus Punt. So I am the outer shell of it. So almost as a sort of a nod to that, it's all about metafiction. But as a nod to that, I use a lot of my own favorite things. So Crouch End, where Susan lives uh, in the book, her flat in Crouch End is next door to where I lived for 16 years before I came into the center of town. I go to Crete every summer. I spend a lot of time in Greece and love the island very much indeed. So um, I put that into the book too, um, as a sort of a nod to the real world. And in Moonflower, in Magpie Murders, there were real characters in there, as there are in Moonflower Murders. For example, Peter James um, turns up in it. And in fact, I've done a short story for a special edition of Moonflower Murders, in which Sophie Hannah is actually a character. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, so so it, it, uses, it uses, I, lo I love the sort of the crossover uh, between the real world and the fictitious world. In The Word is Murder, every, uh, a chapter that everyone seemed to like had a meeting between me, Peter Jackson, and Steven Spielberg, <laughs> which actually really took place. But in the book, Attica, uh, not Atticus, but Alan, uh, not even Alan Conway, which character? Hawthorne, Daniel Hawthorne, the detective, knocks on the door and breaks up the meeting. So you get this collision between the real and the fake, which I think is sort of, it's, it's not quite a new genre, but I think it is a new approach and it, and it makes me smile. Yeah, exactly. And do you get notes from your editor, your book editor saying, oh, we, us editors wouldn't do anything like that, you know, when you're writing Susan's character. Well, I've actually worked with so many editors for so many years that I get it pretty much right, actually. And <laughs> Selena Walker, who is my editor now at Random House, had very, very few notes about, um, about uh, the editing of the book. And what was funny was, is that in the book, Susan criticizes some aspects of Alan Conway's writing. And my actual editor said, had put a pen poised to say this isn't working, only to read 40 pages later, the editor saying, are you following me? This isn't working. <laughs> so the fake editor was, as it were, ahead of the real life editor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, again, the word fun springs to mind. These books, what I'm trying to do is, is to do very elaborate, twisty puzzles, but with a sort of a smile attached. Because I, I think there's, a, there's plenty of room in the world of the whodunit for humor, for, for sort of a smile. Yeah. Uh, now, we touched on Harrogate earlier because we're all missing literary festivals um, and, you know, for a while we were missing bookshops when they weren't open. Th those now are, mostly, when they can be. Um, but we talked about reading and about crime fiction specifically at this time. Do you, think, do you think we sort of have had a good... It has been a good time for books in that maybe people have been able to spend some more time reading if, if they've been able to. Um... I understand that there was a spike in sales uh, of books during the coronavirus period. Um, and, you know, it's, very, it's a difficult question to answer because I, it's so easy for, for people like, if I may say so, you and me, yep. to look on the bright side of this virus and to say, well, actually, it's been wonderful to sit. You know, I'm sure there'll be a word in the dictionary soon for our friends who have been in the countryside in lovely farmhouses, often with somewhere to swim and sunshine everywhere and the family coming and the aga cooking away. And they've had a wonderful time of it. There must be a collective word for people who describe that experience. Bastard springs to mind. But um. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that, yes, to say this has been great time for reading 
is true, but I think it has to be set against the context of the people who have not had time to, to read, the people who have, who have, you know, had to contend with death and with illness in this time. And it's all too easy to sort of, to, to, to forget that actually it's been bloody horrible, actually. Mm. This, this whole virus 2020 has been the, the worst year of my life in almost every single respect, except for the fact that mercifully, none of my immediate family have, have been, um, have, have been ill. Um, so, so, so the answer is yes, but with reservations. Yes, um, yes, fair enough, and I think I think that's fair. Um, a, a couple more questions before we let you go. Uh, one is about Harrogate, and you said you know you you know it well as a, as an area, and you went to uni near there and everything. But do you do you remember going to the crime festival for, for the first time? Do you remember that? experience of being oh, no, yes it was um it was actually I, I haven't been to Harrogate in person now for many years actually I don't quite know why not um well actually I do know why not because it's only actually been in the last five or six years I have become a crime yeah. writer to be invited but yeah I was there with actually with um I mean, with Alex Ryder years ago, and I remember very much the hotel and thinking to myself that Harrogate is the perfect venue for a crime festival because <laughs> it is somewhere you can imagine all sorts of crimes taking place. I mean, if I was going to murder somebody, I would definitely do it in Harrogate. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> you have been warned, yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we touched on Sherlock Holmes earlier. You mentioned Bond. Uh, you've written both Sherlock Holmes and Bond books uh, yourself. Is there a, another much-loved character that, that already exists that you think you might tackle? Well, I, I may not necessarily have finished with Holmes or with Bond. I mean, I, I can't say I'm going to do a third Bond novel, but I, I would certainly consider it if it, okay. it, I would like to do that in a way. Um, have you in, do you enjoy that? Enjoy that process? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, you know, I, these are the books that I've always adored. I mean, Bond and, and Holmes, both of them, as you know, they informed my childhood. And I can assure you that there is no greater way to enjoy a book than to, uh, than to actually write it uh, and to, to go into it. And, you know, that I said that when I, I always took on the, the, the role of a writer of, of Sherlock Holmes simply to spend six months inside 221B Baker Street in the company of two of the greatest friends in literature. And I felt that as a really visceral experience. It was wonderful. And, and I'd like to go back and do one. The one I really want to write is The Giant Rat of Sumatra. Uh, which is, and it's one of the unknown Sherlock Holmes stories. Ah. There are a dozen of them in the books mentioned, cases that Watson mentions, but doesn't actually ever describe. And the title that was always leapt off the page for me is The Giant Rat of Sumatra. What is it? Is it an idol? Is it the name of a ship? Is it a mythical being? You know, where do you even start with that as a murder mystery? And I'd love to write that. In terms of other characters, I wouldn't say definitely not, because I, I think, you know, I think twice is enough. Two characters is enough. Um, if somebody asked me to, to, do, to write the words of a Tintin book, it'll never, ever happen, not in a million years. I only say it as a sort of a, a <laughs> question. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the last Tintin book, Tintin and the Alpha Art, was never finished, and that would be exciting. Um, but that's probably the only one I can think of. Am I, am I right in remembering that... Um... You said when we chatted specifically about your last Bond book that um, you, you went back and just read all of the Fleming novels in... I always do every time for both books and for the, for the two Sherlock Holmes books, House of Silk and Moriarty, the same thing. I mean, fortunately, in both cases, it's not a huge amount to read. I mean, you know, it's a limited, limited quantity of material, but, I, but yeah, cover to cover. Do you get something out of it, something different every time? 
Well, when I'm writing a continuation novel, if that's what they're called, yeah. what I'm getting out of it is how to cheat, how to what to steal. But well, you know, because these writers have tropes, and and it's immersing myself in their thought processes and trying to work out. I quite like to write a book in the style of Dickens, incidentally. That's one of the projects I have in my head. He's the other writer I absolutely love, and I've, I have it in mind at some stage in those next twenty years that we were talking about earlier to write um. A sort of the sort of book that Dickens might write if he were alive now. So not to write it in Victorian times, not right. to do a pastiche, but to write Dickens in the twenty-first century. A book probably set in Clockwell, which is where I live, and and, uh, and using some of the people who who live around me. I mean, you know, from the from the you know the uh, Slovakian lady who does the dry cleaning to the guy who's homeless outside the station to 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 the guy who sells the newspapers uh, in the middle stand to, to everybody. And uh, I'd like I'd love to do a book like that. So it's enough, that's a writer that I might sort of lean towards. And Clerkenwell is very Dickensian in a way. Well, of course it is. I mean, Bleeding Heart Yard is just up the road from here. That appears in Little Dorrit, I think, and Bleak House. And um, uh, Jagger's law firms was just around the corner from us. I think Fagin lived nearby here. Dickens himself had a house just about a 10-minute walk from where I'm sitting. So, uh, so yes, it's the right, it's the right place to, to do it. Um, but that's just for the future. Yeah, something for the future. Something to add to that uh, ever-increasing list, Anthony, of things that you're going to do. Um, we look forward to reading The Moonflower Murders. Uh, it's published on the 20th of August by Century. And do you know yet when we can see the TV adaptation of Magpie Murders? I hope we'll start. I mean, obviously, again, it's almost impossible to shoot of at the moment wow, with so many difficulties uh, around. But we hope to start shooting it at the beginning of next year, so maybe sometime next year. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me today. It's been lovely catching up, even though there's no beer involved. Uh, but uh, hopefully we'll be out on a, a lawn in the sun at Harrogate in the years to come, and we can do it then. I look forward to it. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Anthony. Looking for your next gripping page-turner? Head over to Dead Good, the home of killer crime books, TV and film, for recommendations, discounted books at bargain prices and exclusive giveaways. Visit deadgoodbooks.co.uk, sign up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. See you in Harrogate for the Dead Good Reader Awards in 2021. We can't wait. Thank you for listening to The Hith Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.